I just want to give you a, a quick uh, update. Last weekend or weekend prior, um, we uh, Nick and I went on that trip up to uh, northern New Jersey, looking at the opportunity of planning a church or participating in planning a church in the Clifton Patterson area. Really was a, a phenomenal experience in terms of uh, the rich diversity in ethnicity in that northeast New Jersey area, that, that greater metropolitan area of New York, actually. Listen to just a couple stats to give you a flavor for the diversity. Now, 22 million people live in f- within 50 miles of Times Square. That is one in every 300 person in the world. Uh, this uh, 65% of the residents are first or second generation immigrants. There are over 500 people groups speaking over 800 languages, and only 2.5% have any connection with the evangelical church. So it is just rich in diversity, and that makes it really rich in strategy. It is actually the largest, New York City is the largest um, population of Muslim believers, and uh, Patterson and that Clifton area are a very, very big part of it. And, and there are very few churches, very few gospel uh, witness to them in any measure. And, and, and so it's, I think, not just rich in diversity and it's not just uh, heavy in strategy, but I think it's ripe for opportunity. So this uh, Christ Our Hope is a church being planted. The balance of this year, they're going to be forming their team and all moving there. And then hopefully we can be involved with them in some uh, beyond prayer, uh, some strategic way in the spring of next year. We'll be getting back to you. We're going to try to send another small team in the fall, maybe an elder, some mission team members, um, just to get, again, a better lay of the land so that we can be more effective. So I would just ask you to pray for that, be encouraged in it. It really will serve our church well in terms of providing another ministry outlet for our people as well. So keep that in prayer. Um, Now let me, um, this text here has been, Um, uh, greatly abused in our culture. And so I'm very excited to preach this to you. I I pray that it will be very instructive as it has been to my soul. All of us know about what we're going to be talking about. All of us here have faced stinging criticism at one time or another. You have. It it doesn't matter whether you're a mother or a father. It doesn't matter um, whether you're a farmer, computer tech, accountant, a pastor, um, administrator. All of us have faced stinging criticism by other people. And particularly, I think most painful is when it comes from within our own family or within the family of God. Uh, Jesus is going to warn us in this passage in Matthew 7, as Ray prayed, uh, he's going to warn us that criticism, uh, harsh and unkind, um, will do great damage to the health of the body of Christ. Now, let me remind you where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. The first four chapters, Matthew has been attentive to reveal Jesus Christ as a unique person with a unique mission. Remember how in the first couple chapters, his birth was unique. It was a virgin birth. It was attended with angels and shepherds and star, wise men. I mean, it was a pretty profound, unique birth, giving way to a unique ministry. He was coming to preach and bring this kingdom of God. Matthew, in the first four chapters, wants us to see Jesus as he is coming to fulfill all of God's plans. I think more than a half a dozen times, 
in those first four chapters, we keep hearing it was to fulfill the word of God. It was to fulfill the word of God. So Jesus, so if you think about the whole Old Testament, it's coming down into its perfect fulfillment in Christ as he carries forth this new kingdom that he's preaching. So, so it's a unique person and a unique plan. Then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew begins to give us this unique teaching of Jesus. Remember in chapter 5, the, the Beatitudes, it was all about this etiquette of a believer. Jesus has come to gather people to God. Here's how they live. Here's how they act. Chapter 6, here's how they act in the world. And when we move to chapter 7, it's here's how they act with each other. It's how we relate to one another, this passage. And specifically, how do we deal with criticisms? How do we deal with sins? When we brush up against each other in harsh or harmful or kind of destructive ways, or we act with with meanness or mean-spiritedness, how do we respond to that as a church, as the people of God that have been saved? So what do we do with that? And and Jesus is going to warn us again that, that just as cancer destroys the body, so does criticism, harping criticism, destroy the church. But, but biblical correction brings health and wholeness to the church. Uh, Jesus is going to condemn something, and he's going to command something. And we get it very, very twisted in our modern world. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew 7. I'll read the first six verses. I want you to see what he's going to condemn and what he's going to command. In, John, in uh, Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, Jesus is very clear in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. What's he condemning here? I mean, what the world... Now, of course, this is the go-to verse for the people that spend the least time reading the scriptures. Judge not. I mean, it is pulled out like a sword. If you have anything to say about anything on a moral evaluation level, this thing is pulled out. Judge not, lest you be judged. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, Russian novelist, said that Christians, based upon this verse, Christians can't judge. In fact, he wanted to abolish the court system because of this verse. But is this, is this what Jesus is saying, that there's absolutely no place for the believer to bring a measure of judgment to another believer? Is there, is there absolutely no place to morally evaluate any behavior? I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I don't think he's giving a, a, a kind of this absolute prohibition. And, and here's why I say that. In context, well, you know, the word judge actually has a very wide range of meaning. It actually has, you could use 15 different words to describe what this word is. And so when a word has a wide range of meaning, the context is very important so as to understand the meaning of the passage. And the context here cannot prohibit absolutely judgment because he tells us how to judge. 
Look in verses 3, 4, and 5. He talks about removing the plank so as to remove the speck. I mean, that is giving us instructions on how to bring a right judgment. Or if you were to go to verse 6, he says this, don't give uh, what is holy to dogs and what is precious to pigs. He's saying exercise discernment, that you are not called to continue to declare that which is holy, the gospel, to those who are in absolute rejection to it. He's asking us to discriminate the audience to which we're preaching and and to, to be wise about, at one point, no longer preaching. Or if this doesn't convince you, go 10 verses down in chapter 7 to 15 and 16. Jesus is going to say, beware of the false prophets. He says, you'll know them by their fruit. In other words, evaluate the fruit of a prophet so as to see if the message is true. So he's calling for a moral evaluation. You can go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is when the brother sins against you. When he acts in a way that you evaluate as sinful and destructive towards you, you are to go confront him in his sin. So you're to morally evaluate one another. Or you can go to John chapter 7. So Jesus is healing, right? And he's healing on the Sabbath, and he's being judged for it. They are judging him. The Jews are judging Jesus. And he says to them, he says this, he says, Stop judging by appearances. Make right judgments. In other words, Jesus is inviting correction. Just do it correctly. Do it right, as opposed to just by appearance. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5.12. You know the story there in chapter 5. A a man had been uh, committing sexual immorality with his stepmother. And Paul had him thrown out of the church because of his sin. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for what have I to do with judging those on the outside? The church doesn't judge those on the outside with the standards of God. He says, is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? So I kind of just strung those verses together to help you see Jesus is not condemning all judgment. He's not saying, turn a blind eye to sin. He's not saying, don't worry about discerning between truth and error, good and evil. No, we are to make right judgments. So then what is Jesus condemning when he says, judge not, lest you be judged? Well, I think he's condemning a harsh, a critical, a rash, a judgment of another without intent for their good. You you know that, you you know, the judgments that we bring to people, we have certain set of standards that we live by. We hold certain opinions very near and dear. And then we begin to hold others to those opinions that we hold near and dear. Maybe they're secondary issues. Maybe they're issues of, of education or dress or parenting or the way we spend our money or how you vacation or what you find to be legitimate entertainment. And we take those secondary issues and we begin to then take our standard and that's the measurement by which we judge others as being spiritual or not. It, but it's more than what you say. It, it's more than the criticisms you level against other people for not doing what you think they ought to be doing. It's really, it's not just words, it's an attitude. It's kind of a fault finding attitude. It's kind of a, it's an attitude where you are, um, it's kind of a feeling of superiority in terms of spirituality, and, and, and you are assuming that you know the motivations and intentions of the person's heart. And so you see their behavior, and then you weigh in with a judgment on it as whether it's right or wrong. But you don't really know You haven't talked to them. It's maybe third hand. It's maybe hearsay. But you haven't talked to them about what their intentions are. You've assumed it. Now, we're all guilty of this. I mean, we're all guilty of holding other people to our standards 
that sometimes are not always biblical standards or they're more of your personal standards. remember one time uh, someone graciously came up and expressed to me that they were hurt that I had ignored them when I walked by them. They assumed that I was too busy to talk to them or, or they had an issue that I didn't feel like dealing with. And I explained to them that that's what they assumed and had a degree of of, uh, frustration with me. And I can understand that from their position. The problem is I didn't see them. You know, I had that that torn retina years ago and the sclera buckle on my eye, so I don't even see my hand right here. I mean, I walk into things. I walk by things, not even seeing it. The person didn't realize that. We can easily assume things about people that aren't true. And I think what Jesus is saying is you're not to act in a, and you're not to speak, and you're not to think in this highly critical, harping critical way. It, it, there's really two sources of this attitude that I want you to ask yourself, or at least to kind of weigh in on yourself. There's this hypercritical attitude we can have, a hypercritical attitude. That is when we assume the worst in another person's actions. That's when we... That's, you know, when Jesus says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? You know, th- that's to see a speck in someone's eye. You've got to really be close. And, and it's really kind of, you're being drawn very close to this person in having to find the speck. Well, I think what Jesus is saying here is the hypercritical person is the one that's over-observant of the lives of other people. And you're assuming the worst about them. It, it's kind of like a magnifying glass personality where you get really close to a person's life. And if I use a magnifying glass, I can definitely enlarge the size of the object that I'm looking at. But it's not true. It's not representative of the object's size. And many of us can have a hypercritical attitude where we are over-scrutinizing the life of another person. And it leads to a judgmentalism. It leads to a mean-spiritedness towards the other person. There's a hypercritical attitude. There's also a hypocritical attitude. A hypocritical I think think what Jesus is saying here is, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye? This is, you know, in the first example, we assume the worst in others. In the hypocritical, we assume the best in ourselves. That that we are super sensitive to their sins and very desensitized to our own sins. You know, this is the idea when the log in your eye, you know what the word for log is? It's a plank, it's a beam. You know, it's the kind when you walk into an old church and you see those massive beams across the way holding up the roof. They can be 12 inches square, 12, 18 feet long. I mean, Jesus is telling this, I think, in some degree of humor. Can you imagine this 12-inch square beam coming out of my eye and I'm going to come try to look at a speck in your own eye? So I think Jesus is condemning both this, this hypercritical but also a hypocritical spirit. We've seen this, so sadly, it's a sad irony when we see it. You know, just recently we've had um, at least two officers within the military who were assigned, they were independent of one another, two different stories at the same time, investigating the sexual harassment that has been taking place in much of the military. And these two men are now being accused of sexually harassing women as they work in the sexual harassment department. I mean, it's a sad irony. And yet hypocrisy does the same thing. We're about ready to take the speck out, but I've got the beam in mind. Now, the reason Jesus is so condemning of this is look at the results in chapter 2. Look at the reason he gives us. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
and with, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what is he saying here? I think he's saying that the one who acts with a critical spirit, whether it's hypercritical or hypocritical, whether you assume the worst in others or the best in yourselves, that, that you'll actually come under the same judgment. I, I call this kind of the boomerang effect. If you want to act a certain way and, and these, these attitudes come out from you, it, they're going to come back around. And you will find yourself under the same critical judgment. It, it brings disharmony to the church. It brings disunity. If you remember the name Jimmy Swaggart, the televangelist back in the 80s, if you remember, he was highly critical of Jim Baker, another televangelist, who was committing uh, sexual sin. While he was in sexual sin himself. When it came out, it was a terrible scene for the church. It was a terrible scene. So I think it comes back around, but I think there's a greater warning that Jesus has for us as a church now, that that you come under the very judgment of God, that God will bring to you the measure you judge in others. Now, how does that work for the Christian? I thought we passed out of judgment. So how do we understand God bringing judgment to us? Well, I like to think of it this way. I'm not sure that it's speaking just to the Christian as it's a warning to us as to discern whether we are a Christian. In other words, if you live with a hyper or hypocritical attitude towards other people, what is that revealing about yourself? What does it reveal about the grace that we've experienced from God? If we continue walking with a nitpicking, critical, harsh, judgmental, rash attitude towards people, what does it reveal? There's kind of a reciprocity here, I think. It's similar to Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. When Jesus tells us, us to, to pray, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, he's not saying that you're forgiven by God as you forgive others. So I'm going to go forgive people, that way God will forgive me. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying that by the forgiveness you extend to others, it's evidence you have been forgiven of God. So God has brought forgiveness to you, and that's evidenced in the way that you forgive others. So, likewise, with criticism, if you're walking with a critical attitude, and you're constantly harping and, and finding faults in others, and always being able to justify yourself, then the question should come in your mind, have I experienced the grace of God in being drawn from death to life? And have I really passed through judgment? Because I am awful judgmental. I think that's what he's asking us, to consider. Now look at your own life for a minute. Francis Schaeffer was a great pastor theologian in the 20th century. He spent years in Switzerland actually initiating this Labrie. Um, is a place where seekers uh, looking for truth could come and find the truth of Christianity. He said, just imagine God put a recorder around your neck when you were born. And all of your life is just recording everything you say, every judgment you make, every criticism you issue. Can you imagine if he played that back on the last day? What would it say about you? Would it, would it convict you? Would you be in fear of falling under the same judgment that you brought to others? I think I would. I mean, when you look at yourself, do you find that you're able to justify your actions and yet find condemning those who act in the same way? Are you oversensitive to the sins of others when they impact you, but you're, you're amazingly creative with explaining why you've done the same thing and yet you don't feel the same way? 
I mean, do you find yourself easy to get angry at people's behavior when it doesn't stack up with your definition of what is right? I mean, do you find yourself... Do you find yourself having just an ability to constantly find the holes beneath the waterline in someone's life? And what does it say about the gospel anyways? I mean, what does it really teach anybody about the gospel? So if, if this is a conviction for you, then I would call you to repent, that you repent of your judgmentalism, that you go to God and you say, God, forgive me. You have been amazingly gracious to me in my sin. Grant me the grace to be amazingly gracious to others. You may need to confess to those with, with whom you've had harping criticism over. Maybe they don't even know you've said it. But you've constantly been eroding their character by the things you've said to other people. Folks, if you're a Christian, the Christian feels conviction over that and repents of his sin and is reminded of the grace that is his or hers in the gospel. So that's what Jesus is condemning. I think he's condemning a a hypercritical and a hypocritical, where you assume the worst in others and you assume the best in yourselves. Both of those positions are very dangerous sledding. So that is a point of repentance. I think that's what Jesus is condemning here. But the question hasn't been answered. What do we do when people do sin against us? What do we do when their faults and their behaviors and their idiosyncrasies and their personalities just rub us the wrong way? I mean, how do we handle that in a community? How do we handle that, that grating personality? You know, the church is an interesting place. Most of us are together every week, and yet we wouldn't choose to be together if it was not for Christ. I mean, we wouldn't, we're, we're a different group of people. We're very, very different one from the other. And how do we handle that? in a way that God is honored and we are overjoyed. Because we have to, we're going to sin against each other. I, I love sitting down with the first meeting with premarital counseling and just say, you're going to dislike each other, you're going to sin against each other. You know, when they say, we've never had a fight, well, that will be corrected, just give it time. But, but we do, we, we, cross, we go crosswise with each other because of our brokenness. And so what do we do? Well, I think Jesus is condemning a hyper and hypocritical attitude, but I think he's commanding making right judgments. He's commanding a godly correction. And I think he commands a godly correction for two reasons. One, we need it. We really need to be corrected by one another. I know that's gonna, it's going to get your backs all bowed up here in a minute, but, but we, we need godly correction, one from the other. And he's going to tell us the way to bring about a godly correction. This is where it gets kind of instructive. Uh, We need this godly correction. He's going to command that you and I play a role in one another's life to bring about this correction. So why do we need it? Well, think about it for a minute. Most of you have had an eyelash in your eye. You've had sand kicked up in your eyes. You've had a piece of sawdust. You know it hurts. I mean, this small little speck of dust, or, or a, little, a little shaft of wood, I mean, it can bring you to your knees. It needs to be removed. You cannot exist with it, at least not in a healthy way. And so it needs to come out. And that's what we need each other for. That, you know, when you try to take it out, think about that speck. You know, you take your clumsy fingers and you try to go poking in your eye to pull it out. It's ironic that it's in your eye, but you can't see it. And it's the nature of sin, right? I I mean, this whole thing is a metaphor for those moral defects that we have, those moral defects, those sins. It's in my eye, and I can't see it. That's the nature of sin. 
I cannot see my own sin, and if I do see it, I justify it, and I explain it, and I've got a list of reasons why I should act that way. You do the same thing. And so, and so Jesus is raising to us, just implicit in the text, there's a need for people to help me get the splinter out of my eye. Now, obviously today, uh, we are living in some very interesting times. I mean, to bring about a moral evaluation, to bring about a correction, to, to weigh in with what is moral or immoral is moving now to the level of hate speech. I, I, I mean, tolerance is a virtue that we worship. We worship at the statue of tolerance. And I'll tell you, because we haven't seen the need for biblical correction, the church has gone off rail, denomination after denomination after denomination, because people in the church are not exercising, making right judgments, then they have just gone by the wayside. Well, I can't say anything about him about that. That's his choice. Nobody's getting hurt. It was consensual, whatever the case is. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got to get the splinter out. My goodness, if you don't get the splinter out, his body is going to deteriorate. He's going to lose sight. He won't see life correctly anymore. His vision about life and how to understand life, it's going to be impaired. It's going to be injured. It's going to be ruined. You, you, his friend, need to help him or help her. And so there's, there's an implicit need there. Now, I, I've, been, I've been helped by you all in this. I've been the benefactor of probably some uh, unjust criticism. Maybe the facts weren't all there. Um, but I've really been the benefactor of some of you coming to me and, and reminding me of truths that I'd forgotten. Um, I hesitate to tell you what they are because you might say, well, you didn't get them all. Let me give you a few more. But on a number of occasions, uh, people have pointed out things to me that have given me a broader perspective. They have... They have challenged my approach to people, um, my perception, maybe the narrowness of my opinion. Uh, I have been benefited by that. I, I, I trust that over the years it has produced greater fruit. But elders, women, I mean, people have come up and spoken to me about these things. And I'm sure initially your, your back gets a little tight, uh, but it has been, I know Carol has, and, and I invite that. I, I invite, not all of it at once, please. I'm only so strong right now. But, 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 but it has been beneficial to me. But how do you feel about that? I mean, how open to you, how open are you to correction? I, I think about kids. Let me just start with them. You know, how open, to you, how open are you to the wisdom of a parent? Or, or within a marital context, how open is, this, is the husband or the wife to any sort of correction from the other. You know, I, I love our culture. Everybody wants accountability. I'm convinced nobody wants accountability, not in the true sense of the word, because to be, to be accountable means to be transparent and to be able to be concerned enough to give and to receive in, in like measure. And I, I, don't think, I, I really don't think people like that. I think, ask yourself, when you get corrected, how do you feel? Does, does your back get stiff? Do you begin to pout? Do you move on attack? Do you move right to justification, why you had to do? Or do you just stop and listen with what they're saying? I mean, it's incredibly important, the deception of sin. The writer of Hebrews says, 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Every one of us in here is battling with sin, and you will until you die. And that sin is going to look to be hidden and underground, underneath. It's not going to be popping up, asking to be identified. You have splinters. You need people to come in. And how do you respond to that? The psalmist in 141 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, the psalmist says. Are you that way? Have you profited by it? I'll say this to you, that the need for this is significant in your life. And the danger for you is that you will live with a skewed view of life. You know, if you remember back in 1986, the, um, the um, shuttle Challenger only made it 75 seconds in the air before it blew up in midair. We all watched. I remember seeing it. I know many of you saw it. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a team of seven uh, men and women were going up. It was a scientific discovery. A teacher was on there, if you remember. And it was a great tragedy. And so in, in the inspection of what happened, uh, they found that the O-rings, these circular rings between the, roost, uh, between the uh, booster rockets, Uh, were faulty under adverse conditions. And so that was the reason. But then a few months later, New York Times article came out and said, no, the real reason was, the real reason for the Challenger disaster was pride. And the reason they said it was pride was because the top managers didn't listen to the criticism and the warnings given by the lower level engineers about these O-rings being faulty under adverse conditions. But they had schedules, they had plans, they didn't heed the criticism, they didn't heed the warning. And so we had a disaster because of the pride. So so what in you is preventing you from listening and heeding to the criticisms or the warnings given to you by perhaps a parent or a spouse or a friend? Are you open? Do you invite it? Have you you said to your mother or father, have you said to your spouse, have you said to a close friend, I want to invite you into my life. I've had people in this church say, I open my life up to you. Please, speak to me about issues that you see in me that I may not see. So Jesus first, he condemns this hyper and hypocritical judgment, but he does command making right judgments, but we have to understand our need for them. But then secondly, we need to understand how we do it. Here's where the devil's in the details, if you will. Number one, I would say this, and you see an order here because Jesus says, first, First, he calls us hypocrites when we don't do this. And this is Jesus. He's calling us a name. He's saying you're a hypocrite when you're doing this. But notice, he says, first take the log out of your own eye. The first thing we're going to do, if we move with biblical correction to make a right judgment, we have to practice self-examination. You have to look first at yourself. Before you ever move with a conviction towards another person, first examine your own soul. In other, words, in other words, bring your own behaviors to bear before God. Ask God to open your eyes to your own soul. What am I doing? Like a Psalm 139, you know, where he says, show me if there is any wicked way in me. Show me, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm easily deceived. And, and so there's that examination where we are looking at our motivations. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And we look at our actions. What am I doing? Is it right? Are people benefited? Are people hurt? 
You, you know, it's like a Paul in Acts 24, 16. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Well, that's the line of a person who spends time studying, how is my marriage? How is my parenting? How is the way I'm doing my job? How's my involvement in the community? We're actually taking our own soul to task. And if you don't do that, you're going to always fall under deception from your own heart. And so there's this idea of of taking your soul to task, of bringing judgment to yourself before God does. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. Why? Well, you're self-judging. You're looking at your soul. And what this does is it leads you to a humility and a contriteness so that when you do bring judgment to another person, you're one that has already gone under the knife. I used to have a, a theologian, exegesis teacher, Greg Beale. He's written a huge tome on Revelation, a great teacher. He said, he said, Pastor, always apply the scalpel to your soul before you apply it to your people. Make sure you know how sharp that thing is. And the same thing, before we ever bring correction to somebody, apply it to ourselves. Another theologian writes, the error is not in the diagnosis. In other words, you may be right. You understand where that person is struggling. He says the error is not in the diagnosis, but in the failure to apply to himself the criticism he so meticulously applies to his brother. So be aware of that. In fact, uh, let me just give you a quote from A.W. Tozier on the importance of self-judgment. He was a pastor in the 20th century in Chicago. He says, self-knowledge is so critically important to us in our pursuit of God and his righteousness that we lie under under heavy obligation to do immediately whatever is necessary to remove the disguise and permit our real selves to be known. It is one of the supreme tragedies in religion that so many of us think so highly of ourselves when the evidence lies all on the other side and our self-admiration effectively blocks out any possible effort to discover a remedy for our condition. So before you move with correction towards another person, examine yourselves thoroughly. And, And then secondly, exercise caution to ascertain all the facts. In other words, you don't want to move with biblical correction towards another person with hearsay or secondhand reports. You want to know what the situation is. You want to know what the speck is, basically. You want to know what the splinter is. Is it really a theological issue, or is it just a personal preference issue that you have? I mean, does it really, does it really demand you to intersect the life of another person? I mean, you want to weigh it. You want to make sure that you're not passing judgment on a disputable matters. Some of us hold very strong views on important issues, but they're secondary to the nature of the gospel. Whether it be, well, there's a host of them. I don't want to ping on anybody using specific examples, but there are secondary issues. And Paul's very clear. He says in Romans 14, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, he's saying there are disputable things. There are issues that we can disagree on and still worship. I don't know if those are so correctable. Those might just be you adjusting yourself accordingly. So you want to exercise self-examination. You want to exercise caution in ascertaining the facts. And then last, I think you want to exercise charity in bringing correction. That when you do bring correction, there's a measure of charity. 
It's not harsh. It's not quick. It's not unkind. It's charitable. You've just judged yourself. You know how it feels, so you're going to exercise kindness. And, and, and the intention of bringing a correction, this is very important, the intention that you have in bringing a correction is not to straighten them out and not to fix them so that they're easier to get along with. The intention of correction is for their betterment. It's the splinter you're taking out of their eyes so that they might have clear vision again. Your desire is not to fix them, but it's rather to restore them to having a good and proper eyesight on life. You're helping them see God and the world better. John Stott, a uh, British theologian, writes these words. He says, if we fail to weigh in on the lives of others, we are being dishonest. How can we be each other's keeper and yet turn the other way when one of our brothers strays off the path? The encouraging thing is that you've got to be spiritual to do it. In other words, you have to understand your own sin. You have to be patient to diagnose the issue, to make sure that the speck is worthy of correction. And then you have to move with the intentionality for the betterment of the person that you're seeking to correct. Paul writes, he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Why would he say that? Why would he put that qualifier in there? You who are spiritual. Well, because if if you're not spiritual, you can be a bull in a china shop. You can really be destructive and harmful. You can blind a guy going after to try to give him vision. So, So Jesus is really saying two things here. He's condemning that harsh, hypercritical judgment that hypocritical judgment. He's condemning that, and he's warning us. He's saying, you're going to fall under the same judgment. It may display things about your spirituality that you don't see. But then he does command right judgments. And he commands right judgment first by raising the need. All of us have a need here. And then he shows us the way to examine self, uh, to be self-examining and, and to be cautious in ascertaining facts and to be cautious in going with charity for their benefit. Folks, and I would just, so so that's the kind of the two points that Jesus is going after. And I would say to us as kind of a general challenge is we have to be invested in this. It's going to be awkward. It may be uncomfortable. And you may do it partially wrong. But the health of this body rests on our ability to be transparent and honest with one another. The, The health of our body rests on our ability to deal with conflict and sin and ruptures that we have with one another. If we can't deal with these, if we just ignore them, then it just continues to build up. And, you know, the pile under the rug doesn't go away. And and then secondly, I would say that all of what I've just said has to be grounded in your understanding of the gospel. You know, when you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, before anybody were to move with any sort of correction, you know, thinking about the gospel is reminding you that your sins have been judged by God on Christ. It's what Ray was praying about, this substitutionary atonement. That when you look at the cross, you see that is what God thought of my sin, and Jesus became the curse for me that I wouldn't be cursed of God anymore. This is the power of the gospel in letting you see your sin being judged so that now when your brother sins against you, you can recognize he has in no way sinned against me in any measure that I have sinned against God, and yet the gospel has freed me from that judgment. May I free him. 
But the gospel also teaches us about the nature of forgiveness, that God has forgiven us an unfathomable amount of sins. Go and read Matthew 18, verses 18 to 35. It's, it's very, very, um, yeah, it takes away the stilts of our self-righteousness. That, that, that in the gospel we have been forgiven all of our sins. There is no sin that was not covered by Christ on the cross. Can then someone sin against you in such a measure that with the forgiveness God has given you, you can't forgive another? I would ask for grace to be able to. Some people have sinned against you greatly. I know that. And I know it's, I don't mean to be simple-minded and I don't mean to be narrow-minded and just saying, well, forgive them. I know that many of your hurts run very deep. That's why I would point you back to the gospel and point you back to the cross. And then last, the cross is a good reminder for us that Jesus bore our judgment so as to restore us. We now bring correction and bring forgiveness so as to restore them. See, this is the health of the church. We're going to cut each other, but we're going to also be the ones that God uses to heal each other. And the healing comes by correction and forgiveness and love and giving people a second chance. So, so I would just say that this highly instructive, highly challenging, I think many of us feel under the weight that we are often critical, and, and that is condemned. But, but making right judgments is commanded. So let me begin in prayer, and we'll take a few minutes. And what we want to do in this time is uh, we're just responding to God as we've been convicted or encouraged by his word. And so we're speaking to him, and I would ask you to speak uh, briefly so that many may speak and loudly, that we can hear your prayer and say, yes, I agree with that. God, have mercy on us. And, um, and then uh, Brother will, Keith will close us in prayer. Thank you for listening to that hard word, church. Father, we do thank you and, and praise you for this word. Uh, it, is, it is revealing. It is uncovering. Uh, it is uncomfortable. Lord, but we are grateful uh, for the medicine that you apply to us, the instruction that you give to your church, that we might be uh, a church that will display the wisdom of God. Would you be glorified, Father, to pour grace upon us to apply this sermon uh, in the unique ways to the unique souls that are here in a way that they would be uh, built up, encouraged, and strengthened. 